Hello, and welcome to the third episode of Artwork, a monthly podcast produced by Fab NYC, exploring and celebrating the work of artists and cultural workers in New York City. I'm your host, Risa Shoup, and each episode we bring to the table two to three guests from the field to reflect upon a different theme. FAB is an arts and cultural advocacy organization based here in the Lower East Side. And through this podcast, we hope to peel back the curtains for folks who don't quite understand what we do and also highlight what it is to work in and lead a cultural nonprofit in our community. This week's opening and closing music is courtesy of Jonathan, a producer that grew up here in the Lower East Side. We also want to give a big shout out to DJ Uncle Tone, who has been the one hooking us up with many of these rad musicians, including Nova Man Dark's music you heard from our first episode. Today we discuss generosity and labor. Joining us to explore the hinge between generous labor and laborious generosity, and let's be real, it's more complex than that, are three amazing folks, Jeffrey Jackson Scott, Megan Marshall, and Betty Yu. Hey, Betty. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you for having me. Um, I am a uh, multidisciplinary um, native New Yorker. Um, I'm a multidisciplinary artist, rather. And um, the issues that I've sort of addressed in my range of work has been around militarism, labor, gender, justice, and immigration issues. Um, And more recently, um, I co-founded the Chinatown Art Brigade, which is a, a cultural collective fighting uh, gentrification through arts and culture. Awesome. Thank you, Betty. Thanks for being here today. And Jeffrey, can you introduce yourself? Yes. Um, thank you also for the invitation. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Jackson Scott, and I am the creative director and co-founder of a company called People Mover. Uh, People Mover is a communications and engagement strategy firm that works with art and cultural institutions and individual artists to connect their work with new audiences and new audiences to that work. Great. Thank you for being here. And finally, Megan, can you introduce yourself? Yes, I can. Thank you. I am the Director of Internal Operations at New York Theatre Workshop. That means I oversee four umbrellas, finance, HR, facilities, and IT, all the fun things. (laughs) Or maybe the most real. Um, Well, we are going to get super real today, and we're really glad to have all of you here for this discussion. So thank you so much for your time uh, and sharing this space with us. So let's jump in. Uh, Hopefully, folks have been listening, and now they know what's about to occur, which is practical excellence. If you don't know, what's going to happen is we're going to each bring to the table a practical application of our work. It's not going to be fluffy. It's not going to be super esoteric. It's going to be a concrete practice or an act that tangibly affects the people and work that we do. Here we go. We're going to start with Megan. All right. Well, we here at New York Theatre Workshop are engaged in a five-year strategic plan. And one of the many, many items on that list is renovating the 4th Street Theater, our smaller theater space. And I somehow am successfully learning to talk to architects and board members and contractors about that space. Excellent. Um, For our next practical excellence, we're going to go to Jeffrey. No. Uh, (laughs) Um. Recently, I worked on a project that was about the Black Lord, or the Black Panthers rather, and the Young Lords. Um, something that's really key for People Movers' work is that we center the artist, and we think a great deal about the conversation that artist wants to have with their work. So, the company creating that piece, Universes, it was really important for them to make space after every performance for community conversations, inviting the audience who'd seen that performance to talk together about what they had seen, what they heard, and what it triggered them to think about. So People Mover uh, worked really closely with Universes and with um, the producer, the public theater, to design those conversations and to staff those as well. So we brought in about 20, or rather we hosted about 20 conversations and brought in about 12 artists who are working at this intersection of social justice and theater and or performance um, to host those conversations. And every single one of them happened. Nobody changed their schedule. No conversation was canceled. In each case, somewhere in the universe of 50 or more people stayed 
um, to have a conversation with each other as a community about what the work has to say to them about the lives they're living right now. It was cool. Very cool. So we've got learning to talk to folks about topics that we don't usually talk about. We've got centering the artist and sticking to a schedule. And now, Betty, <laughs> what is your practical excellence? Mine is super tactile. Um, so Chinatown Art Brigade had our holiday celebration this past Saturday, as well as our illuminating of our anti-gentrification sign, which in Chinese says Chinatown not for sale. And we're partnering with Mi Casa Es No Su Casa, which is out part of Mayday space out in Bushwick. It's a cultural organizing space. And um, basically there's uh, 30 or 40 anti-gentrification signs that have been distributed throughout the five boroughs and people are putting it in their storefronts, um, on their windows, on the tenement buildings, what have you. So we had a bit of an issue where we had a five foot wide sign that said Chinatown not for sale and the cab office, which is uh, the organizing group we work with, uh, CAB is organizing Asian communities, and they have a tenants union, Chinatown tenants union. Anyway, their storefront on 55 Hester is about four foot wide, and our sign is five foot wide. Hmm. And you can't cut into it because the wires, it's Christmas lights, right? It's like fairy lights that illuminate the sign. And I am not a very, um, shall we say, you know, like a hammer kind of person. So we didn't have any tools with us. And so we were like scrounging through the whole entire office. Somehow we found a drill. We found a saw. I'm not sure. We found a saw in the office. And we all figured out somehow like four of us just put our heads together and said, we're going to put this damn thing up. And we saw the edges as close as we could to, this, to the wires before, without cutting into the wires. Drilled holes, um, little like eye hooks into the ceiling. with Some anchors so it doesn't fall and fall on someone's head. So, you know, we were all kind of, you know, it was like a, it was an interesting situation in collective teamwork and we made it work. Now it's illuminated. It's up. It's beautiful. It's a Chinatown not for sale. And it's, it's, no one knew that, that there was that conundrum that we had, that we had to actually saw off a, a whole entire foot off of each end of the wow. sign. So that's my practical. That is super practical thing. and super <laughs> tough. That's a great um, one. Yeah. Major props. I'm going to go with I apologized for my practical excellence. I made a major scheduling error. I recognized it. I wrote folks. I was like, I screwed this up. This is on me. Um, and I said, like, do we, we want to keep the OG schedule? And they were like, yes, we do. And I said, okay, and um, found us a new space, and we did it. Um, and I'm, I'm certainly glad I caught the error. I am grateful to my colleagues for um, being gracious and I'm glad that we got to move on and do our work. So that is Practical Excellence for Episode 3, Generosity and Labor. Now we're going to move on to the meat of the episode, which is our roundtable, where we're actually going to talk about um, the things that we're grateful for, the things that we are not grateful for, and the work that it takes to do all of those things. So I want to lay out as plainly as possible, and I hope you guys will jump in in this little listing, the kind of labor that exists in our field. And frankly, all work. So this isn't just specific to the arts for the brief moment. And I also want to talk about how they're valued. Um, so there's mental labor yeah like intellectual rigor um the work that it takes to kind of you know maybe do math in your head uh to perhaps translate words in your head like all of that mental intellectual labor that we do on a daily minute basis um physical labor like betty talked about in her practical excellence lifting a thing breaking a thing apart fitting a thing into another thing using our bodies um, to the extent that we are able to do so, um, and that is a different kind of labor, and it, uh, it certainly intersects with the mental piece. And then finally, the less talked about but equally important, perhaps even more important, emotional labor. Uh, I think that's been more of a topic. I want it to keep being a topic. Um, feelings are difficult to identify. Feelings are difficult to feel, and feelings are really hard to talk about, especially at work. So emotional labor, I think, is a very big deal, and we that's uh, that's in the conversation today and all days as well. What else? What are we missing? What are the other forms of labor? 
This is more often talked about, this type of labor I'm going to mention is more often talked about in um, in tech or digital kinds of conversations. Um, but I just want to call out immaterial labor. So for example, all of the things that we do as users of the internet, there is a monetary piece to that. Some company, Google or some other, reaps benefit from that quote-unquote immaterial labor of ours, the clicks and the shares and the likes and all these things. Um, in the context of cultural institutions, maybe a place where we might observe immaterial labor, um, thinking again about it being on the user side, on the audience side, would be all the things that I have to do in order to attend your thing. What about um, investment labor? Maybe this is the wrong way to say this, but, you know, the off hours you sort of spend when you're not on the clock, right? Learning a skill, um, reading management books. That's what I sort of do a ton. Um, thinking about the next move you're going to make. Um, I think there's a lot of off hours for people, especially obsessed with their work, that they spend doing and thinking to prepare for their actual on-the-clock time. Yeah, we can twist around some HR terms and say that no one is exempt from that kind of work, I think. <laughs> right. <Thank you>. Yep. <laughs> yes. I would say, and maybe you some you guys might have hit on it, as um, this sort of endure, I don't know what you call this, but I guess it's emotional labor, but it's more like um, just being there to sort of listen to somebody else's emotional rant and feeling like you have to be the person, at least I often feel like, when the person is clearly distraught and needs to vent about something, mm. whether it's mm. around work, collaboration-related stuff, or around a project or the world, politics, whatever, that I need to be that, not a rock, but be that listener and really be a very, very good listener. And that is my major role in doing that. Sometimes someone just wants that ear. And um, that's a lot because sometimes, oftentimes, you, you, um, you're like, who do I kind of unload on? Um, when someone's really, and more, I feel like more recently, given the times we're in, a lot of that, um, I feel like uh, it's fine. I'm, I I want to be that listener, but then I always feel bad, like, okay, I don't, yeah, I don't want to unload more mm. <laughs> on that person. Clearly, this person is distraught, and so I feel like that's a lot of labor. And mm -hmm. as, the, as the listener, like, who do you unload to, or how do you unload if it's not to another person, right? Yeah, that's a hard. I always try to just to drunk dial Time Warner and yell at one of their customer service people. That makes me feel better. Uh -huh. Are they twenty four hours? Because I might they have to are add that to my hours. repertoire. Oh, this is good to know. Oh no! Because the bar, is, the bar closes. I do yeah. think it's interesting that listening as a subsection of um, emotional labor is tough, mm -hmm. and you know, I try to think about that as I talk to, you know, my leadership. But then I'm, you know, in the middle dealing with. Um, my direct reports and you just it's emotionally exhausting yeah as I listen to you Betty talk about the labor of listening I th it makes me think a lot about how it it needs to be an exchange so in those people who are coming to you having issues and they want to unload and you describe them as being distraught if you're having an actual conversation the natural flow of that would feel like you know totally hear you and here are some things that are happening for me mm -hmm. but sometimes in those situations I know for myself, I don't feel there are people in my world who just want to unload, mm -hmm. as you've said, mm -hmm. and are not at all actually interested in having an exchange. Mm -hmm. Which is fine. And those folks, like, I'm there. I'll, I'll be that ear. Yeah. And, um, and I don't know if I'm just more guarded. There's only specific people I unload on, mm -hmm. and it's the people I love, like my partner, mm -hmm. who I totally unload on. And that's probably the person that gets the most... Mm -hmm. of it but i don't know if i feel and then maybe this is more <laughs> like a, my own cycle analytical self speaking but sometimes i just feel like oh i don't want to burden this person mm -hmm. i don't want to even if it's just not politics this is my own shit like i just don't feel like i want to put that on somebody to have to receive that and so oftentimes i'm the person who you know is is um i write a lot it's through my art that i express myself um I, I, I'm, I'm definitely not shy. I'm definitely a talker. I'm very social, all these things. So I'm often like prompting someone else like, oh, tell me about so-and-so. And, but you know, so maybe people feel like they can talk to me because I'm mm -hmm. a good listener. Um, I don't like to talk about myself. So that's mm. maybe me. And I don't know. Other people no. like that too, I guess. Hmm. But. Well, I'm going to segue us 
but I want us to hold what Betty is saying in our in our ears and in our hearts and use it. So what what I want to ask is, um, what does generosity look like in our work? I hear the silence, so I'll say a thing <laughs> that I was thinking about when Betty was talking before, which is, um, as someone who manages folks, it's a close relationship. I see them more than I see most of my friends. Um, I see them about as much as I see my partner, given our work schedules, and certainly more than I see my family. It is hard as the person who naturally is on the more powerful side of the balance of power to know how much to let folks unload and how to get in a rhythm with them about that and what to unload onto them because you don't want to add more work to the folks that you're paying to do a certain amount of work. But it's also inevitable. Like, you don't deny your feelings in the office or... You do, and then that gets you into trouble later. And again, as like the the manager person, I try to make space for folks to feel their feelings at work. But that dance is just tricky, and it's gotten a whole hell of a lot trickier this fall with all of the darkness in our world. Mm-hmm. And it's and I really call it a dance, not as a euphemism, because it is a dance, because it is something that you're doing with other people. It gets physical, and it changes with every beat. So it really is a dance. But yeah, it's not, and it's not something that you can know. There's Mm -hmm. no, to continue the metaphor, there's no like set choreo here. I think dance is a good um, analogy because I was thinking about boundaries and how to set more appropriate boundaries, but boundaries are, seem immovable. Um, and really every, right, every day is different and every person is different and every person's needs are different. Um, because we try to, in my department, that serves, we take care of the people that take care of the people. Mm. So we take care of the internal folks that take care of the actors. We take care of marketing so they can take care of audiences. Um, and it's really hard to say no to them. And we try never to say no. But sometimes I'm like, you know, I think I need to learn how to just set a, a better boundary for what they're asking me to do so that I can continue to take care of myself in order to keep taking care of them sustainably. It's challenging. Yeah. You know, one of the, it's a, it's a tricky question, this question of generosity and how it is expressed through one's work. And for me, it's tricky because it, it's both simple and complex. It's complex as Megan says, because there's so many different people that we are serving and the various things that each of us do. Um, so it's challenging in one way to talk about it in the context of my work. So when I consult with institutions, an institution in my view is a set of resources. It's a facility, it's a board, it's a staff, and oftentimes there are programs. Through those things, I'm certainly thinking about how can this institution be more generous? It's not, it doesn't tend to be a word that I use, but I, I, this is how I think about it. How can this institution be more generous with these resources? So are there ways in which the institution can have an impact in this community, say, through its facility? Are there, institu- are there or community-based organizations, are there individuals who are in need of space? What does it look like to share this space? Are there individuals or organizations that could... Y- benefit from an hour to a half hour with a development director? How can we create that opportunity? Are there conversations that are happening or that want to happen in the community? And how through our programs can we make that possible? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, there's a way to think about it in terms of sharing power, which is sort of what I'm talking about. but there's definitely a moment when I got into this work um, and started a company about two years ago, it came for me out of a very strong desire to not do what I had been doing previously um, and to be more in a position of service. And so 
that for me is very tied to generosity. So when I say I don't really use the term generosity, it's actually because I'm constantly framing it. And how can I be of service? And how then when I'm embedded in these institutions, can the institutions be of service? And when I'm working with an artist, how can this artist and his or her work be of service? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, that's a great jumping off point for me because um, I often don't use that word generosity and I, and I, I it's lovely that to think about it. I'm mm-hmm. like, hmm, how, how do we, how am I generous? How do we uh, share the generosity with yeah. one another um, and be kind? Because I think in New York City and the social justice movement, it can be very unkind and cutthroat. And sometimes you're like, are we on the same, are we <laughs> fighting the same struggle in the same movement? Like, why do you want to like rip my head off right now? You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it gets very uh, uh, complicated and it gets territorial and it gets very heated, um, you know, doing sort of like labor organizing and, and just being on the ground doing organizing work. I guess for me, you know, decided to leave my full-time nonprofit job, Center of Center for Media Justice, which they're based out in the Bay and I love them and I love their work. But for me, I wanted to be generous to myself and take care of myself. So I was like, let me leave my full-time job, finish my MFA and actually uh, me myself, put myself out there to serve social justice movements um, using art and culture. Um, And so um, I think that there's that piece, but then the generosity, I often think about the generosity of other folks working people like the tenants that we work with in Chinatown who have so much going on. They're working 12 hours a day, often seven days a week. And they find that time to come by to a meeting. Um, you know, not because this is their own case at stake, right? Oftentimes they're living in deplorable conditions and they're fighting back, but they're sharing wisdom with one another. They're, they're in a tenant association. They're trying to build, they're trying to, you know, um, start a tenant association. And so, they're giving advice to each other. And so that generosity, sometimes I feel, I mean, not to belittle myself, I'm not saying I'm putting myself on a different category, but for them, folks who are working people who are doing so much, they have families and they're willing to come out to a meeting and then collaborate with Chinatown Art Brigade, where we were asking them to come to workshops every week and we were creating art together um, and then these projections together and their message and their thoughts, right? Because they're on the ground doing the work and their wisdom and, and their expertise was, vital to the to the project um so i guess i'm thinking about their generosity toward the work Mm -hmm. how do we feel about the notion then that it is difficult to give to ourselves and to others if we are not aware of our own circumstances and the circumstances of those with whom we are interacting Oh, I mean, I want you to say that again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's so thick. I, I, I think I'm like it's still sort of like congealing. And uh-huh. what I think I'm, I'm hearing us talk about is if we're not aware of what we need in order to do our work and what we bring to our work outside of the direct networks in which we're doing the work, and similarly, if we're not aware of what others need and what they bring. And I don't just mean resources, I mean circumstances, the time they're spending on other things, the, um, the, the way that we travel to the place where we do the work, the experiences we may be likely to have on the road to work. Um, if we're not more aware of that, how can we truly give of ourselves receive from others and give to them as well without being parasitic. Mm. That's deep. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about that. I'm trying to unpack, unpack, unpack yeah. that yeah. right now. In my head. I mean, a lot of things happen for me as you, as you frame that. Um, I mean, the first is the easiest, like, no, but we can't. Mm-hmm. We can't do it. We, mm. we can't be in a mode of generosity if we don't understand our own capacity, what it is that we have to offer and understanding that within the context of what is it that folks actually need? How do you get into a position of of knowing that thing? And then we return to listening and thinking about the importance of listening, listening to yourself and understanding your own context and your particular situatedness um, and listening also to those people um, that you're in a position to serve to understand from their perspective, what are the things that they need and how can you be a part of 
supporting and promoting um, ways in which those folks can, and this is, these are my own politics here, help themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Feels a little bit like cleaning an apartment. I mean, I clean in a very distracted way where you're starting in one section and then you move over to another and you're like, oh, now I'm going to do this. Now I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think it's an endless game, right? To learn how to listen, to learn about empathy, to be able to ask someone where they're coming from, but also understand that they may not be able to communicate. We were talking about emotional labor. Um so the words you're getting are not necessarily what they're meaning to say, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't, that's a tough question, Risa. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. is a tough one. I mean, you guys got me there, so. <laughs> yeah, no, it's tough because of, um, you know, I always think of people's circumstances. So mm-hmm. the labor that someone else is putting into something and is, I because of, maybe they're undocumented or they've got, like I said, lots of a family and they have so many things stacked up against them, obstacles and challenges, yet they persevere and they're, they, they are willing to stand up and fight for their own rights and the rights of other people versus someone who is a, from a privileged back, background already and maybe race plays a factor into it, you know? Like, you know, I know I should be the person to say, well, you know, everyone's labor, you know, I am so like happy about everyone's participation. But in reality, from my framework and, and the work that I've been involved in my whole life, um, I do value the folks who are most disenfranchised and most marginalized, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who actually are emboldened to say, no, we're not going to take this anymore. And I think in the last, I mean, in the last month, given the election results, um, I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm surprised by myself being more open mm-hmm. to having conversations with people who are, I, I consider myself much more left mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. Uh, a liberal, but I've been okay with having conversations with a bunch of liberals who are like Hillary fans, and mm-hmm. which I'm mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. But you know, I'm like, okay, we're kind of on the same side right now. Okay, let's 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 talk. Let's. Mm-hmm. And I normally, to be honest, I would just be a, a bitch and I would not give them the time of day because I my time is precious and. In the past, I'm like, I don't want to talk to you about Hillary. Like, I'm just wasting my breath. I can't go there. But now I'm like, okay, let's talk. Mm-hmm. Let's find common ground. Trauma mm-hmm. makes strange bedfellows, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but for how long? Oh, yeah. For how long? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how exactly. long can you, how long do we need to do it? How yeah. long can we keep it up? How long can we keep it up? Yeah. 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 True. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I struggle, mm-hmm. this question of how long can we keep it up, this is a real struggle in the work that I've been doing recently. Um, because there are, some, there are these moments when a cultural institution that is desirous of a new audience, sometimes at the opening moments of that conversation, you can hear, ah, you're interested in a transactional relationship. You're not actually interested in something that's transformational, both to the institution and the community. You're just looking for people to come for this one thing, for this one time, for these couple weeks. And what I'm really interested in doing is creating these long-term relationships that, that want to be transformational. Um, so I've been, I've been thinking a lot about how, how do you create that kind of structure? I'm, I'm tempted to ask us to invert ourselves, um, knowing that we're going to just keep this, up, this conversation up as well. But I want to throw in then the notion of gratitude. So I think we've been talking about giving a lot, um, but I want to remind us to also discuss receiving. And with that, I want to um, bring us back to our work in the arts and ask where does the gratitude come through in our work? And I will also pose a tricky question, which is um, when do we find ourselves performing gratitude but not necessarily feeling it a maybe a really quick example is like when everyone around you is doing the standing ovation and like maybe you stand up for like whatever reason you got but not because you love the show so much it's like that performance (laughs) aspect of gratitude so we've been talking about giving let's also talk about receiving we call it PR uh, gratitude mm. or like a PR facilities fix, right? Where you're like, you're doing something so someone sees you doing it, not necessarily in the spirit of really 
Mm -hmm. um, fixing it. Of mm -hmm. course, I fix everything that I'm asked to fix. Just want that to go on the record. But um, <laughs> yeah, interesting. The gratitude, not feeling it. I feel like when you get tired, I don't necessarily feel the gratitude, mm -hmm. but that I'm going to, you know, say thank you so much. Um, not really meaning it. But I think actually simple thank yous from people are like the most sort of overwhelming, right? If I made you a beautiful spreadsheet and I'm enthused about it, just be like, thank you so much for your hard work and I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I don't need the, you know, all the money that you don't have to give me. I just, I like the thank you. <laughs> yeah. You don't want like special fundraising campaign to recognize your like right, delicious spreadsheet work. So that, yeah, someone's paying for my salary. Um, no, <laughs> but it's funny because some people don't, need the thank you and they have a different language of love i guess because some people don't like when they get an email we've been talking a lot about this at work that says thank you because you're just adding another email to their inbox so they can't really even handle that so then you're just like well i hope you understand that i appreciate that wait 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 but have you had a conversation about what those individuals would prefer uh not to get an email <laughs> i think that no, we haven't asked what, what else they need because I'm like, I can give you an email or I cannot give you an email. Those are the options. Yeah, but is it, I'm very confused by that. Is it that, is it that there's another email now in your inbox or is it that they're receiving a thank you email and thinking it's not genuine? No, I think it's another, I think it's the cluttering. Like we resolved the issue, I fixed it, I know I did my job and this is not how I feel. I like thank yous because then I'm like, all right, we're done. So I can delete this now. Mm -hmm. Um Thank you but some closure. people, yeah, thank you as closure, which is I'm very <laughs> grateful for closure. So maybe that's a, a thing that I feel. But yeah, you know what I should do is ask. I'll take a poll this week and see what they want. I'm super instead. curious about it. Yeah, because I can understand attaching to that feeling of oh gosh, here's this thank you email. If if how you're reading it is as a performance of thanks as opposed to really genuine, deeply felt gratitude. I completely understand the eye roll. I'm, I'm imagining an eye roll that happens when you got that and you see it. I am very bad at receiving appreciation and gratitude from people. I'm really bad at it. And I'm starting, I don't know if it comes from my training as a organizer. Mm. It's always things are, at least the, the school of thought for me was always things are collective. So I don't want to take individual gratitude or appreciation. It's the collective, you know, it's a collective process. And, um, I'm starting to do that more. It's really, really hard. I'm not going to lie. I mean, last mm -hmm. couple of years, you know, people around some of the, the projects I've been involved in are like, thank you for providing this medium so that we can learn about people's stories. And, you know, um, that's OK to me because it's like, OK, we're providing a platform to receive these tenant stories, for instance, you know, to. But then when people are really personal to me, like, thank you for being you or thank you for what you do. And my, my reaction is always, no, 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 we all do. We're, we're all mm -hmm. doing the best we can. They're like, no, but why can't you just receive that? I'm saying to you, thank you for being you. Thank you for all that you do. And it's not going to lie. It's still really, really hard for me. Um, it's really hard for me. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work on it. Mm -hmm. um, but I mm -hmm. do love when um, I receive the personal handwritten notes in the mail because mm -hmm. I never do. And I will get some, a handful um, in the mail. And I'm like, because emails, I'm like, yeah, whatever. Okay, fine. Mm -hmm. yeah. But like an actual handwritten note is uh -huh. kind of amazing. Or if someone makes something and brings it to the office, um, like mm -hmm. cookies or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's like a lot of love has been put into it. So that I appreciate. But overall, I'm, I, I, I'm, I don't know how to take appreciation from people. I'm exactly, exactly where you are there, Betty. I... I'm going to push a little bit further because you didn't say this, but I'll, I'll add this. Um, I love to thank people. I love for people to know. And, and I, if I'm thanking you, I fucking mean that. I am so deeply grateful for your time, your attention, like whatever it is that you've done. If, if I'm acknowledging it, it is so real. I cannot stand to be thanked. Mm. I just really, it, it, I, it, there's a physical thing that happens to me. It's tied to a lot of things. It's definitely about the collective. It's like, no, we all did this. Mm. We all arrived at this result together. But it's also tied to a thing I really deeply know about myself. There's a reason why I avoid the spotlight, and it's because I can become attracted to it. Mm. And that will become the reason why I do the things. Mm -hmm. And I 
am so very careful there. Even at moments of entering a new relationship with an artist client or an institutional partner, sitting down, talking about money, I'm very aware that part of the reaction I have to talking about money is that it's tied for me to not this gratitude thing, but about putting myself first. It's like, I can't, I can't let that happen because I'm not the most important thing in this equation. Again, if I'm going to be of service and if I'm trying to have an impact, then I have to be really careful about how I front load myself and when that happens. Yeah. I'm, these things make me very nervous. So I know this is why I have this allergic reaction almost to being thanked for sure. It's interesting that you talk about money because I work on the finance side of nonprofit and always have, and hopefully always will. Um, and I worked as the payroll manager at the public theater, mm. actually, in the early days. And learning to talk about money with people, their paychecks are very personal to them. And I think that's, I mean, this is like a generous thing. I learned early on that it, it mattered to me, obviously. Um, and it certainly matters to them. And there's lots of people that apologize for asking for money or are worried to speak about it. And I think that especially in the nonprofit world, and we've been talking about this um, a lot at the workshop, like why we're here and what the profit is that we get, because it's certainly not money. I, I still feel like money should be tied to the thing because we live in reality mm -hmm. and like you have to have money to pay your rent and eat. And I, it like hurts my heart a little bit when artists or other people are like scared to sort of talk and ask yeah, for it yeah. because I think it's like, it's real guys. Like you need it and you got to, ask for it and if they never send you a thank you note or a card like at least yeah. you'll be able to eat and buy right, yourself right. a bottle of whiskey mm -hmm. to thank yourself yeah. you know mm -hmm. for me it's also it's tied to another piece as well like yes there's this uh deep concern that i have of, of loving the spotlight and how that gets tied to money but it is also that the more money i get the less money moves through to the folks for whom i I'm trying to be in service and want to have an impact. Mm -hmm. So recently, mm -hmm. um, I was a part of a two-year Ford Foundation grant. Mm -hmm. So I knew coming in exactly how much money that was to the dollar. And I also knew how much money I was getting. And I negotiated that and, you know, because, yes, New York is super real. Everywhere mm -hmm. is super real, but New York is super real. I've lived other places. It costs a lot of money to be up in here. And so I, you know, negotiated and got a, and got a fee. And when I was looking at the number in the context of knowing the full grant, I knew, wow, what this also means is that there's only so much that's possible because this is now the money we have to work with. And, uh, you know, I, I can make that work. When I was a kid, there were food drop-offs on my porch. I mean, one of the trustees on the board of this organization that I'm speaking of, but not naming, um, he and I connect so directly on having been raised poor. And he's always like, you can make that work. I'm like, I know I can make it work, but I also know every time a check comes to me that there are things that we weren't able to do mm -hmm. so that I could go see most deaf at the Apollo or whatever, you know, these, this is, these aren't the reasons why I ask for what I ask for, but those are some of the ways that it's expressed. Yeah. You know, just to, piggyback off what you were saying it's really interesting i was thinking about it myself like the humility of 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 um with something you said around uh you know i'm 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 afraid that i'll be so attracted to the spotlight, to the spotlight right? yeah. and you sort of uh, gravitate toward it and that is real for me mm -hmm. um because of so many reasons but being humility and being staying grounded and on earth <laughs> yeah and not you know, and I, I think because society teaches us that it's, it's, it's a single person, right? It's that single leader. It's that one person, the idol, the cultural icon or um, and, and, and we have mm -hmm. to do everything in ourselves to not internalize mm -hmm. that because we're socialized to, 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 yes. to be these things. And so for me, there have been times, to be honest, you know, when I was an activist and now it's like so attractive to just that ego mm -hmm. can really grow. And you can always take those opportunities, but it's important for us to stop and think, why are we doing this work? Who is in disservice? Yes. Who are we serving? Yeah. Oftentimes I'm not the best person or I want to build the leadership of my collective. So yes. oftentimes it's like, 
no, you should actually do this thing. You should speak here mm -hmm. or you should do that because that's what the work is about. Yeah. Or, you know, rather than the cultural collective speaking, maybe it's the, the, the direct organizing group that needs to be in the forefront, a tenant who is going to be much more impactful than me. Yeah, maybe I'm being asked, but I need to like step aside yeah. and let shit happen because stepping aside is really hard for people. It's like sometimes you just got to step aside and let people, other people, emerge as 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 leaders i mean there's a reason we all went into the into the arts in as much as we did and i think we all did it to different degrees and in different ways but there's a reason you go into the arts and part of it i agree is that like seductive ego force um and that you know one thing about that is that can also help you help keep you there in hard times but i think as we're all discussing that is not the right reason to be there word word yeah so we've been talking about like why we do our work we've been talking about how we receive gratitude for our work how we give gratitude uh how we give thanks for folks with whom we work um we've been talking about the wrong reasons to do our work and the, the perhaps even the wrong reasons to be thanked and certainly perhaps the wrong reasons to thank others so within that we've also talked about money a very difficult triggering thing I think that everyone has different edges around money and it's we live in New York City where it's fucking expensive and we are confronted with financial choices all the time. You know, we joke and about how it's really hard to get out the door and not spend $20 and that's real, you know. I also want to recognize that there's a lot of work that we do and Megan brought this up in the beginning about the off hours work. There's a lot of work that we do that we are not paid for. And some of that work is really the work of negotiation. And that is some complex physical, mental, and emotional labor. I'm also bringing this up because it's really linked to FAB's history. FAB was brought into being by 12 organizations that needed air traffic control, that needed help negotiating time, space, and resources, physical, financial, and otherwise, so that they could buy their properties from New York City. So I think, I think there's a kind of inherent intention to negotiation um, and collective labor in our work. I'm not saying that attention always makes us do the generous thing or the progressive thing, but I do think that the, the, the attention, because it's part of our history, is there. So I want to pose as a final question, what are the things that you specifically, Betty, Megan, Jeffrey, what are the things that you aren't paid for compensated for financially, but have to do, however you want to dis define what it is to have to do something. And th think about the listeners, you know. Mm. <laughs> I love how you said that. Do it for the babies. I, di I actually <laughs> didn't say that, but because I, I knew you would. <laughs> this one's for the babies. That's a hard one just because, you know, a lot of, I mean, what, at least for the, for the work I do is through grants and residencies and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm just thinking the wheels are turning, mm -hmm. like what, it becomes so like nebulous and kind of like mm -hmm. abstract for me, like what of my labor is not compensated for that I do? Well, I like and a we, lot. <laughs> we just talked about removing money and always giving, right? And always wanting to be great at it. So it's hard to now be like, oh, what am I doing that? Mm hmm Right. Yeah. 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 I'm asking you to do some emotional labor. I fully recognize right. that. It, it mm. This would be easier to answer if it were a part of my former life when I was working inside institutions as a, as a full-time staff person and had things like budgets where you could actually look and attribute your, your time. It's like, ah, but in now mm -hmm. I'm paid a project fee or a yearly retainer. And so just it tricks one's brain into thinking, well, every single thing that I do on this project is compensated. Whether it's compensated well is a whole other conversation, but everything that I do is time paid for. It feels. Mm. Whether that's real or not is different, but that's how it feels. Mm, right. That's what the language and the, and the context of the relationship communicates to me. So it's interesting to be made to think about it because yeah. now I'm questioning, wait, is that true? <laughs> well, and I have a hard time removing my interest from it. Right. Uh -huh. So I'll read horrible management books like uh -huh. written from the 70s, how to have a meeting <laughs> because some young manager at the workshop is struggling with 
something and I'll be very curious about solving the puzzle or helping mm. to figure out how to talk to them about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's more like I don't have to do that. It makes me better at my job and I'm still learning as a young you know, manager myself. So I guess that's what I do in off hours is like shop for those books and underline them for them mm-hmm. and, you know, all those fun things. But I almost would do that anyway. I think I was doing that when I was 16 and it's mm-hmm. not cool. Um. <laughs> but it is, I will say it is, it is cool to like the stuff you do that you're not paid for. I'm, True. It's, maybe it's. What you just said resonates with me because everything I do, even though I'm getting, let's say a really small grant. Uh, or a big grant for for this project using Chinatown Art Brigade as an example. I love every aspect of it, but you know we're we're not necessarily, or I'm not necessarily getting paid for all the events that I go to and all the activist meetings and all, you know, presenting at conferences or workshops or whatever it is. But it's about not you know, and it's not about just promoting our collective or, but but it's really about the work and it's about connecting the dots with other movements and other folks who are doing housing rights work. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and that's really important. That's why I, that's for me is really why I do the work is to be able to build those relationships. And so I can't even tell you how many events I go to because I feel like we need to be there. We need to be in solidarity or we need to make those relationships, you know, uh, partnerships. Mm -hmm. So I feel like uh, I can't even, quantify that i can't even right. put a, a number of hours mm-hmm. on yeah. that but yeah. that is the important behind the scenes work mm-hmm. that people don't actually see when they look at a piece of work mm-hmm. whether a piece of media or something they don't understand all that the process is just as important to me or if not more important than the actual product yeah yeah betty you you thank you i love everything you just said um what i be Again, this is tricky because of the nature of the the relationships that I have. So I'm the creative director of this company, but we have these contractual relationships. So outside of those contracts, things that I just do as me, those are things that quite naturally I'm not paid for. But I also don't really think about it um, because none of this is work to me. It just isn't. I've been talking a lot recently with people about how there's a very slippery line between like the life-work balance for me. But part of the reason that that is true is because this isn't work to me. Mm-hmm. This is my life. Mm-hmm. This is what I do. This is who I am. Mm-hmm. This is this is what it is. Things that I would say in the context of the question that I'm not paid for, are all of the coffees, emails, and conversations that I have with primarily younger artists mm-hmm. who are really trying to figure these things out about. So I'm making a thing, and I understand now in this moment that it's no longer enough that I made something. Because as I say a lot, it's like that shit was cute when you were in school and your mom and dad's friends had to come and your grandma and your neighbors and whatever, but that's over. It's not enough that you made something. Mm -hmm. For whom are you designing this thing? What is the nature of the conversation you want to have? So when I sit with artists now and have those conversations, nobody's paying me for that, but Mm -hmm. I don't need to be paid for that. It's like the world, this is like my grand ridiculous, like, vision of it it's like the world will benefit from that Mm -hmm. like just that shift in thinking that frankly you're not the most important thing well there's There's something that you want to see your ego if if you're doing it for the world i but i really am i'm doing it i'm doing it for the world and i'm doing it for that little black kid that i was who was never invited into arts and creative spaces it's like i want i want that kid to see themselves reflected and i want whoever is making that work that might make that possible to know that there's a potential impact out there that's much greater than and so to be thinking about who are the what is the nature of the conversation I want to have and and who are the people that I want to be in dialogue with and how do I find out about them where do I go how do I hang out there how do I make this work with those communities with those people can I just say that that is amazing because (laughs) Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm in that weird you know being, I'm not going to say exactly how old I am, but you know, I was in college in the '90s. You know, mm-hmm. um, I look young. Yes, it's the Asian genes. I, I was, I was there as well. Okay, <laughs> but um, I'm not a, I'm ashamed of my age. Yeah. But I find myself in the mentorship role quite often mm. with other artists, mm-hmm. yeah. activists, yeah. Asian American folks, and I love our collective. And now being in a position where a lot of other Asian American folks are like want coffee and hang out and talk to me and like talk about the intersection of cultural organizing and community organizing and arts and culture and 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 
And and I feel very hopeful because people are thinking more and more about, okay, beyond my artwork, it's not enough yeah. just to put a film out there, right? It's not enough just to put a piece of artwork out there. Who are you reaching? What, what are you, what's your purpose? Who's, yep. your, who's your primary audience? Who's your secondary audience? What kind of change are you trying to make? What kind of impact are you trying to make? Or what kind of feeling are you trying to provoke in people? And that feels great. I don't know. It feels great that that there seems like there's a, a, a more and more of this kind of something is in the air, right? Mm-hmm. Well, obviously people are feeling it. Um, but that um, it gives me hope in a way in terms of I, I actually never identify myself as an artist until recently, even though I study film and TV and then I got my MFA because artists I find to be so self-indulgent and divas and i'm like i don't like divas and i don't like people who are so absorbed with themselves i just don't like i really don't but (laughs) more recently i'm seeing the i'm seeing another way and and i think that there's a lot of folks who are seeing the intersection of arts and culture and activism yeah uh, yeah you're i think that you betty are seeing something that, that i'm definitely seeing there's such an increased conversation in the artist community around these things, um, which is amazing to me. Our institutions are more than a little bit behind the, that curve, but definitely artists are there in that space, and it makes me feel hopeful as well. Thank you all for a more than substantive and very honest discussion about generosity and gratitude and work. We're going to move on to the first ever edition. <laughs> I wish you all could have Woo-hoo. seen Denise's triumphant gesture of plus one minus one. So what's gonna happen is I'm gonna read off a thing and y'all are gonna go plus one or minus one depending on how you feel about that thing. We're gonna start with with a softball and it is food. Plus one. Plus one. Plus one. Plus one. Running vintage designed or decorated subway cars during the holidays. Plus one. Minus one. Minus one. Minus one. Print mailing from arts institutions informing you of their season. Minus one. Plus one. Plus one. Minus for me, but probably a plus for somebody else. (laughs) Uh, Wait, wait, wait. Is that a legal move? Yeah, I know. I am the boss. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's yes, it's legal. It's legal for me. It's legal for you. You Okay. You know, rules are made to be broken. Yes. yes. Wow. Plus one. Yeah. Plus one on that one. Right. Right. Megan, rules are made to be broken. Mm, Depending on what kind of rules. Plus or minus. Um, Accounting, guys. I come from accounting. No, it's good. It's good. We don't break those rules. Um, uh, Pizza rat. Minus this one. one's for Denise, guys. Pizza My, rat. Minus one. Minus one. Absolutely. Are you guys talking about that video? Yeah. The, oh my yeah. God, that video. Yeah. I, I've I watched it ten times. I, I I have to say plus one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I gotta I gotta like rep for me and Denise here and go plus one on that. Um. Oh, this one, Megan. There's two here and they're for you. Thanks. Um. Google Sheets versus Excel. Oh. Any plus one? Which one you like? Uh. Yeah. Plus Excel. Absolutely. Yeah. Whoa. Wow. Those Google Sheets, man, not happening. What? Not really? a fan at yeah. all. Yeah. No. Wow, this might be a deal breaker. I don't know if we can ever see each other again. <laughs> plus one on the Google Sheets. For a girl on a budget, the Google Sheet is the way to go. Well, I, I, I plus on both, I would say. Okay. I'm not I'm uh, not clearly. Jeffrey, like I'm gonna guys. buy you a subscription, dear. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm gonna send you a thank you email. Oh <laughs> ouch. For for Functionality plus one Excel, but shareability obviously plus one the Google Sheets. Mm. Yes, <laughs> conditional <laughs> formatting in Excel or Google Sheets. This is for p- conditional formatting. Uh, plus one. Yeah, plus one. Can we say more about what conditional formatting is? Megan, you have the floor. Conditional formatting is when you make a cell change a color or do something based on you know, certain factors. So what I actually figured out that you cannot do in Google Sheets is we have something in some Excel spreadsheet that they had bolded and changed to a different color. And I wrote a function on the back end so that at the bottom, the conditional format is that it's capturing that. But conditional formatting could be like if you built a budget and you plug in a larger number at the bottom, you could have that cell turn red or green if it's good or bad. I take back everything I said. Now we have to spend all of our time together. I'm going to help you out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's our personal thank you to you, Megan. Yeah, you're welcome. Wow. Thanks, guys. Still share. Um, Love that. Moving forward, New Year's resolutions minus one. 
Minus one. Minus one. Minus one. We found consensus, my dears. Uh, Finally, office dress codes. Minus one. Minus one. I'm going to caveat and say plus one, you know, like, I don't know if I need the cutoff shorts. I don't know. I'm conservative. I'm way too conservative. So I'm going to, I don't know. I'm zero. I'm going to tell a story and then give mine, which is that I used to work for Lucien Zion and Lucien wears a uniform and he really has um, a closet filled with dark jeans and white shirts and dark shorts and white short sleeved shirts. And I so appreciate a uniform. So I'm going to plus one the uniform, which was not the question. But again, rules are made to be broken. I love uniforms. I think it makes yeah, it okay, so I'm much gonna join easier. You. I'm going to join you in yeah. the, but only in the Lucian world. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. he's impeccably, impeccably mm-hmm. dressed. Yeah. But, but part t- of the magic of is that he's, it's always the same. Right. Yeah. But we could all do this. We could all pick a uniform. Mine's you know? black. Right. Yeah. You got a uniform yeah. going on. I tried to do know? that for a minute because I, I, there's something I understand, I understood about the world as this black mm-hmm. person in the world um, and working in these particular spaces. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you got to, sometimes you got to bring it. And so for a while, I definitely was borrowing from Lucien's style yeah. guide. And I was showing up everywhere in a blazer and a button-down mm-hmm. shirt and jeans because I had to still be me. Sure. And high-top sneakers because yeah. I still had to be me. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I got bored of my own look. Yeah. And so now it's like ultra casual all the time. Yeah. I, and I would, be, I would be a hypocrite if I did not also um, give some, some sense of a plus one to the office dress code because a fab staffer who is not here has had a conversation with me about that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to own myself and say, there are moments where I have had to plus one the dress code. Um, we can talk more about that sometime, I promise. I want a but plus not- one that you said in that phrase yeah. that you're going to own yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. a plus one that. Plus Thank one. you. Plus Thanks. one. Oh. Um, all right. That's it. We did it. And now we just got to wrap up I'm going to like take off like all my hats right now, like Fab and host and whatever, and and say very sincerely, Megan and Betty and Jeffrey, thank you. I know you all as human beings like outside of this room that we're in right now. And I really genuinely care about each of you. And I really appreciate that you gave us your time today. And I'm very glad that I know you. So thank you so very much for all that you do in this world. we now also want other people to know you because you are so wonderful. And I, uh, I'm going to ask you, as I said, I would, how people can find you on the Internet. And we are recording. It is the end of December, but people are listening. And it is sometime after January 6th. Um, so if you have a thing that they can see in the future, uh, please tell them about it. And know that this all gets like recorded on our website. So folks at home, like don't worry about writing shit down right now. And we're going to start with Megan. Megan, where can we find you on the internet? Oh, this is really fun. Um, Twitter and LinkedIn. It's just Megan E. Marshall. Mm-hmm. And then uh, since I work at this wonderful theater. Uh, What's it called? At New York Theater Workshop. Uh, you can do at MYTW79 on Twitter and Instagram. Mm-hmm. And then we've got a website, MYTW.org. Mm, great 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 betty you where can we find you so you can find well me betty you.net n-e-t but feels weird to say my own website so i'm going to actually say also chinatownartbrigade.org mm. we are on twitter uh, at facebook and instagram chinatown art brigade you'll find it we also have a show at um the pearl the new pearl river mart which is at thir- 395 broadway uh, in Tribeca from January 5th to the 23rd. Upstairs, mm-hmm. you can find a whole a sort of the theme is resilience and resistance in Chinatown. So please come check it out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And finally, Mr. Jeffrey Jackson Scott, where can we find you? So to find my company, People Mover, you can find us on Instagram at P E O P L M O V R. You can find me on Facebook, and you have to use my whole name. And if I'm not findable, well, good luck to you. Um, but you can find me in real life in bed which is where I live and where I do um, all the things that I do in the bed Um, And People Mover partners with the Public Theater and the Museum of the Moving Image. So those are places and spaces where you might find us in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you all for sharing those infos with each other and, and with our friends listening. Uh, thank you also to Megan for coordinating space. Thank you once again to producer Jonathan for supplying us with some sweet tunes. Thank you, Denise, for everything, including friendship and hard work 
and associate producing the hell out of this podcast. Thank you, Tim McAleer, uh, the invisible presence of the audio engineer. Um, please talk to Fab. Uh, find us on Twitter at Fourth Arts Block and or using the hashtag, hashtag artwork, which is the name of this show. Tell us what you think. This, uh, this project of this podcast is constantly in formation. We tweak all the time. So what you say will influence what we do. Uh, artwork is on iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and all sorts of places where you get your podcasts. Subscribe, rate, stay tuned. I am still Risa Shoup, and on behalf of our guests and my team at Fab, thank you so much for listening. This one's for the baby.